Well, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. The title for today is Religious Corruption and Its Casualties. Religious Corruption and Its Casualties. Let me read the text for us that begins in verse 38 and extends down to the end of the chapter. Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse 38. Mark writes, In his teaching, he, Jesus, was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets, who devour widows' houses and, for appearance's sake, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich people were putting in large sums. A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury, for they put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned, all she had to live on. Since the days of Judaism and the beginning of the church, God's people have been plagued by false teachers, false teachers who are promoting themselves as false prophets, false prophets who promote themselves as false pastors and shepherds. Peter actually wrote to the first generation of believers in 2 Peter chapter 2, false prophets also arose among the people looking back into Israel's past just as there will also be false teachers among you now and in the future. Throughout my pastoral ministry, I, I must confess to having many moments of being disheartened and disturbed by how easy it is and how many people in the church can be so easily duped by false prophets and false teachers. In fact, without a strong, without a strong confidence in God's providence and sovereignty, it would be easy in spiritual leadership to despair watching so many chase after false shepherds. I'm convinced that many well-meaning believers find themselves following the crowd, taking a book recommendation without any discernment, listening to a preacher without any sort of biblical overlay or discernment for that man and end up confused or even worse, having their faith shipwrecked. Jesus warned in Matthew 7, verse 13, enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and many there are who enter through it for the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few there are who find it. It shouldn't surprise us that so many follow after false teachers and false shepherds. But recognizing them, recognizing false teachers, false shepherds, false pastors requires knowledge. It requires discernment. It requires courage to say no to these men and women. 
And it should not surprise us that Jesus and Paul and Peter and John all warn in the New Testament that corrupt leaders would make their way into spiritual leadership positions in the church and cause disruptions and even apostasy in Christ's church. Near the end of his life, Paul wrote to Timothy in his last epistle, the time will come in 2 Timothy 4 when they will not endure sound doctrine but wanting to have their ears tickled will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. They will turn away their ears from the truth, will turn aside to myths. So when you have people who are susceptible and teachable and undiscerning putting their lives in the hands of false teachers who are selfish and money grabbers and demonically inspired, you have a recipe for disaster. We live in an amazing time. We saw the amazing wonders of technology this morning, but the amazing wonder of technology in our generation can also give airwaves to false teaching. Just turn on your television to the major Christian stations that are on your your cable boxes, and you can observe these false teachers lined up like 737s ready to take off and whisk the undiscerning to heresy. It's Tuesday of Passion Week, Tuesday of the Passover week. Jesus is merely three days from the cross. And now he identifies the danger of false teachers and false teaching, warning the people to recognize them, warning the people to run from them, warning the people to discern their falsities. It might be interesting for you to know, this is Jesus' last public sermon. This is his last public teaching. Everything from here out for the next three days will only be directed to his men, to his disciples. This is his last public discourse. And this warning is what we find in our text today where he finally puts an end to his earthly teaching ministry before the cross, before the resurrection, before the ascension, And he says, this is the final lesson to leave with you, my beloved people. It's an expose on the corrupt religion that had hijacked Judaism and was represented in the groups that had been attacking him over and over, pounding and pounding, trying to expose a weakness, trying to expose him saying something for which they could condemn him. The Sanhedrin, the elders, the Herodians, the scribes, the Pharisees, the priests, even the high priests joined together to try to pull a coup on his influence and ultimately find grounds to murder him. So, in this final lesson to the crowds, Jesus shows them and us four indicators of religious corruption. Four indicators of religious corruption. Let's walk through these four indicators, noting them in our hearts, making them the filter for our discernment, and even looking to ourselves so that we we can avoid any leaning toward any of these dispositions in our parenting, in our spiritual leadership, in our care groups, in our discipleship. Four indicators of religious corruption. Number one is in verses 38 to 39. Religious parading. Religious 
parading. Again, this moment is the final time Jesus will teach publicly, and it is his most scorching indictment of the Jewish leaders. The Jewish system, the temple system that had turned on God and turned toward the leaders. The target for this this indictment is the scribes. However, it's indirectly aimed from Mark's perspective uh, to the Pharisees. And in Matthew's account of this same interaction, he addresses the scribes and the Pharisees together. As we talked about last week, the scribes were theologians of the day. They were the seminary professors. They, Israel was a theocratic nation. So if you'll think about this, the theological leaders in that culture were also the civil leaders in that culture. Because it was theocratic, they applied the word of God, the law of God to the, the, the workings of the nation. And so they were all together at the same time, governmental magistrates, civil judges, and the final authorities for all things biblical because they were the teachers of the law. But there was a big and a massive problem. The scribes and the Pharisees were systemically corrupt men. The system was systemically corrupt. Their interpretation and application of Scripture was corrupt. Yet they were the ones responsible to pastor or shepherd the people of God. This was so eternally significant that Jesus isolates them, draws them out, confronts them in front of everyone. And remember, they are standing right there listening to every word he says. Matthew tells us that he continued to say, woe to you Pharisees, woe to you scribes. So he's talking to the crowds and actually pointing them out, maybe even with his pointed finger saying, woe to you, cursed be you in your ministry. Look at verse 38. In his teaching, he was saying, Matthew 23, 1 says, Jesus spoke to the crowds and to his disciples. This is still public. There's an expanded report, as I said, of this confrontation in Matthew 23. It's the better part of the whole chapter. Mark, though, gives us an abbreviated account. And let's step back. Why would Mark give us an abbreviated account when Matthew's is greater? Because Matthew is targeting a Jewish audience So all of these details would make more sense to them, an application for them, than Mark, who's writing largely to a Gentile audience. Even though he brings up the issue, he doesn't feel the need to go into such detail as Matthew does. I will be borrowing, though, some from Matthew as we look through this text, because it's important to see how stingingly and how indicted the Pharisees and the scribes are by the lips of our Lord The Lord begins with the strongest warning, beware of the scribes. And Matthew again lets us know that the Pharisees were standing there with him. Beware of the scribes. This is the toughest possible language. Jesus is saying, don't trust in spiritual authority that's over you because they are not truly spiritual men. This is not an indictment against all spiritual authority. Uh, In the pastoral epistles, uh, Paul lays out in great detail what spiritual authority is to look like in terms of the character of of those who are leading, in terms of the giftedness of those who are leading, in terms of the regulations of the word of God for those who are leading. 
But Jesus is saying, don't trust these spiritual authorities because they are not truly authentic spiritual men. Then Mark records five of the displays of their hypocrisy. And again, Matthew goes into way more detail, as we'll see in a moment. First thing Mark does is he calls out their love of making a parade of themselves. Their religious pomposity. Look at what he says. They like to walk around in long robes. What is this? The term long robes refers to a shawl, a a, a talith, that was draped over them. It extended all the way to the ground. It was worn during formal prayer and other religious acts in the synagogues. They were long, extended all the way to the feet, dragged across the ground often, and they had blue tassels at the bottom. You say, why? Well, there's a reason for that. In Numbers chapter 15, verse 37, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the sons of Israel and tell them that they shall make for themselves tassels on the corners of their garments throughout their generations and that they shall put on the tassel of each corner a cord of blue. It shall be a tassel for you to look at and to remember all the commandments of the Lord. This was a string they they tied around their fingers, in other words. When they saw these tassels, they were to remember the commandments of God. So as to do them and not follow after your own heart. That's important. These were to be reminders to look to the Lord and his word, not your heart and your intuition. Not to look to your eyes after which you played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. These tassels, these robes, were to be reminders of them to be holy men, but they became reasons that they could put them on and parade in front of all the people and be recognized and be respected and be looked up to. It might interest you to know that in Matthew chapter 9, verse 20, Jesus also had these blue tassels at the bottom of his robe. It was a fulfillment of Scripture. But as Matthew will tell us, they had made them elongated, probably dragging like a train across the ground. They extended the tassels to call attention to their piety. Jesus notes that they liked to walk around, get this, in public in their long robes to attract attention. I mean, a modern parallel that we could think of is is someone who has a doctoral degree wearing their doctoral gown with the three stripes on their sleeve into the grocery store, into the shopping mall, so that people could look at them and say, wow, look how educated that man, that woman is. The point was they were on parade with their pride I'm personally not in favor of wearing any kind of regalia in ministry settings that might in any way set us aside as a pastor from the rest of the congregation. There's a place for formality. There's a place for doctoral robes. It's called graduation. But not to walk around in the marketplaces, as we'll see, just so that you could be recognized. Matthew quotes Jesus here saying, They do all their deeds to be noticed by men. They broaden their phylacteries and lengthen the tassels of their garments. They exaggerated their importance by exaggerating these blue tassels. And don't miss this. 
Matthew says, they do all their deeds to be noticed by men. There it is. Look at the next phrase. And they like, Matthew says, they love respectful greetings in the marketplaces. These greetings in the marketplaces uh, where, where they liked to wear their robes, by the way, are actually listed in Matthew. Listen to what Matthew says. They love respectful greetings in the marketplaces. This wasn't, hey, high five, pastor, priest. This was calling the people to address them in reverential, respectful terms. Matthew tells us that. They love respectful greetings in the marketplaces. They love being called rabbi by men. They do not, but do not be called rabbi, for only one is your teacher, and you are all brothers. Do not call anyone on earth your father. Does that not sound like the Catholic Church? For one is your Father who is in heaven. A direct command to never address a minister of God as Father or Source. And yet Catholicism does it with absolute zero humiliation. Do not be called leaders, for only one is your leader, that is Christ. But the greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. As I said a moment ago, there is definitely a place for honoring a person who has an earned degree or an earned doctor, and you can call them that in the classroom, you can call them that at the graduation, there's a robe that's, that's to be worn for that ceremony, but there is no place for that person to love that title in their heart. No place for that person to demand it from people as they address them. No place for anyone in spiritual authority, any pastor, any elder, to demand that you address them with a title or with a greeting that honors their position. In fact, Matthew says you're supposed to be known, maybe even addressed as a servant, as a slave. Verse 39. And the chief seats in the synagogue and places of honor at banquets. This is interesting. In the synagogues during that day, I've seen this in Israel, there, there, there was a bench in front of the, the, uh, the auditorium there, the, the meeting room, that faced the congregation right in the front of the chest that held the scrolls of Scripture. They wanted to sit on that bench and be seen as the people looked toward the Scripture because they wanted to be noticed even above God's Word They had an over-exaggerated sense of self-importance. And the same was true at their banquets and their holidays and their feasts. The most honorable seats were on the right and left of the host. Do you remember James and John jockeying for position that they might be able to sit on the right and left of Jesus? They were actually succumbing to the same spiritual pride and parading They wanted to be seen, they wanted to be respected as in charge and as important. They paraded their religiosity. They cared where they sat, they they cared how they were addressed, they cared how they looked, they cared how they were thought of. This should be something to watch for in spiritual leadership. This is something to watch for in the leaders of our own church. It ought to be something you look for also in your own life and spiritual influence as a parent, a discipler, a teacher, 
a leader. Beware of those who parade their religiosity and be doubly careful not to parade your own. Spiritual pride is pride nonetheless, and God hates it. It takes attention in a soul's heart from God and puts it on the leader. That's tempting, attempting to steal God's very glory. The first indicator of religious corruption, you see leaders who parade their religiosity. Secondly, religious extortion. Religious extortion, a second indicator of religious corruption. Verse 40, who devour widows' houses? Stop right there. Corrupt religion takes special aim at vulnerable people. The idea here is taking advantage of widows, the most vulnerable of all, those who've lost their their husband to be able to take care of them, to provide a way uh, of living. And without any inheritance, they were completely subject to the welfare of the culture. If you watch very carefully, if you read your Bibles very carefully from beginning to end, you will easily discover that God has a high priority on caring for widows. Widows are a higher priority to God. Exodus twenty two twenty two. You shall not afflict any widow or orphan. Deuteronomy ten eighteen. God executes justice for the orphan and the widow, and shows His love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. Zechariah seven ten. Do not oppress the widow. But the scribes. Abused the hospitality of widows. There are many accounts in, that, in the histories of that era where they would take advantage of them. They demanded that they give money to the synagogues and to the temple, especially out of their inheritance that they would have received from their husband's death. They had to give to the synagogue, give to the temple. This was basically purchasing blessing from God. It's extortion. But those monies that they gave to the synagogue, the monies they gave to the temples, guess what? Went right into the pockets of the scribes, into the pockets of the Pharisees. Why? Luke tells us in Luke 16, 14, that the Pharisees were lovers of money. Beware of the spiritual leader who is corrupted by the love of money of materialistic blessings. What he's saying here is they devour widows' houses. In other words, they take and eat up everything that they would have to eat on. The scribes extorted these poor widows, devoured their livelihoods in their selfish coercion and padding their own pockets. Does this sound like the false teachers on TBN? Beware of the spiritual leader who looks to the pockets of the vulnerable to fill his or her own pockets. Religious extortion. We'll come back to that in a moment. Third, religious pride. A third indicator 
of a spiritually corrupt, religiously corrupt system, religious corruption, religious pride. This is in the middle of verse 40. And for appearances' sake, they offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. It ought to flash off of the page of your Bible. And for appearances' sake. Jesus cuts straight to their heart, straight to their motivation. It's simply to be seen and known for appearances' sake. What do they do for appearances' sake? They actually do a spiritual act for selfish glory. Look at what it says. For appearances' sake, they offer long prayers. Doing a spiritually mandated service, a spiritually mandated privilege, not for interaction with God through prayer, but for being seen and known and respected and appreciated by others. Their prayers were intended for the ears of men rather than the ears of God. Is there not a lesson right there for our prayer life? If you're praying in a group, who are you praying to hear? Do your prayers by yourself sound like the prayers that you utter in a group? How about the length of them and the depth of them and the repetition of them? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explained, when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. There is nothing waiting in eternity for them. They have already enjoyed the adulation of others rather than hearing well done, good and faithful servant from the Father. Who do you pray to? Who do you pray for? And when someone is praying, are you praying with them and are they leading you to the throne? Boy, as spiritual leaders, we ought to be especially careful in how we pray and in whose ears we are desiring to be heard. Their prayers were the ultimate hypocrisy. Pretending to talk to Almighty God, but really just wanting to impress the people who heard them pray by their reputation and by their length. What's the Lord's assessment of these? Well, look at the last phrase. These will receive greater condemnation. What is he saying? Same thing James is saying. Those who are teachers will incur a stricter judgment. Those who have failed at the spiritual leadership level will receive condemnation. This is not just a loss of rewards. This is actually speaking of spiritual, supposed spiritual leaders who are unsaved, as we'll see in a minute, who are actually trying to give spiritual leadership to others when they don't have an authentic relationship with the Savior. Greater condemnation always awaits religious leaders who are insincere hypocrites. Then Matthew tells us, at this point in the interaction, Jesus launches. 
He pronounces judgment on the scribes and Pharisees in a series of woe, woe to you. It's so important, I think we need to look at that. If you turn over to Matthew chapter 23 for a moment. Matthew 23. Look at these series of woes in Jesus' condemnation. Matthew 23, verse 13. Remember, this is the same encounter. Matthew's just giving us color. He's giving us more detail. But woe to you. He's speaking straight to the scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, scribes and, her- and, and Pharisees. Hypocrites. He calls them hypocrites to them face. Because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from the people. Wow, they are actually standing between God and heaven and keeping people out of heaven. That's how serious corrupt spiritual leadership is. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering in to go. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one a proselyte, a follower of your own discipleship. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. How indicting is that? They are pastors of Satan, shepherds to hell, guides to eternal destruction. Woe to you blind guides, verse 16, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. You fools and blind men. Which is more important, the gold or the temple that is sanctified? The gold. And whoever swears by the altar, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the offering on it, he is obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering? Therefore, Whoever swears by the altar swears by both the altar and everything on it going to the heart of the offering. And whoever swears by the temple swears by both the temple and by him who dwells within it going to the heart of God in the presence of God. And whoever swears by heaven swears by both the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, verse 23, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You tithe mint and dill and cumin and you have neglected the weightier provisions of the law. Justice and mercy and faithfulness. They had neglected those three requirements of the law. But these are the things you should have done without neglecting the others. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Concerned about all these little things and they miss the big things. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside are full of robbery and self-indulgence. They look great on the outside. Their hearts were corrupt. You blind Pharisee, clean, first clean out the inside of the cup and the dish so that the outside of it may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which on the outside appear beautiful. Nice grave headstone, but inside they are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. So you too outwardly appear righteous to men, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Verse 28 is a summary of the whole problem. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build 
the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partners, we would not have been partners with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. So you testify against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers, you serpents. It's getting more more turned up here. You brood of vipers, pit of snakes. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Therefore, behold, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city so that upon you may fall the guilt of the righteous blood and shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah to the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Wow. These are the most scathing words in Jesus' ministry in his final public sermon to the spiritual leaders on the Temple Mount, bragging about themselves, parading about their spiritual pride during the week of Passover. It's pride. Absolute, unmitigated pride. The brood of vipers were hypocrites, they were sons of hell. And get this, they made the people who followed them twice as much sons of hell. I think about that when I see these false teachers on television. The people who are following them, the people who are are giving money to them. These teachers and those people don't have the true gospel and will go to hell. Learning to sniff out pride in a supposed spiritual leader or teacher is something, it's a discernment that you need to develop that we all need to smell out. Eternity is at stake. Religious pride. Fourthly, religious exploitation. Religious exploitation. Now we come to the famous account of the widow and her might, the widow's might. Remember what we noted in point two, the second indicator of religious corruption. Corrupt religion takes special aim at the vulnerable. Now let's think about this. Since the end of chapter 11, Mark has been describing the onslaught of Jesus' enemies. Group after group line up to try to confront and embarrass him, trap him. Every part of the Jewish leadership had come against him, scene after scene, Group after group, Mark paints a picture of the contention between Jesus and the Jewish leaders. This Nazarene upstart blue-collar teacher from up north in Nazareth should have had no way to gain traction against the most well-learned scholars of the day on the most important week on the Jewish calendar with the most important people in those crowds Something happens different in verse 41. Something changes as we come to verse 41. After standing in debate for most of the day, Jesus sits down. 
And he sits down and he begins making observations. Specifically, he's sat perched right across in the court of women from the place where people brought their offerings to drop them in these receptacles in the temple. Now, a little footnote. As we've talked about many, many, many times before, the first and foremost interpretive applicational principle is context, context, context. Any given passage always has a context, what comes before it and what comes after it. So let's back up for a moment before we look at this widow and her offering. Where is Mark taking us and where has Mark taken us? Well, if you look back over the, since the middle of chapter 11, it's been scene after scene of confrontation where Jesus is calling out the religious corruption of these leaders. He's also promoting his own uh, ability to interpret and apply the law. And it's conflict after conflict after conflict, judgment after judgment after judgment by Jesus' own words to these, these groups coming against him. That's where we just came from coming into verse 41. But where are we going? Look at verse 1 of chapter 13. As he was going out of the temple, this is after this encounter, one of his disciples said, Teacher, behold what, what wonderful, beautiful stones and what a wonderful building, the temple. And Jesus said, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. A pronouncement of judgment. Because of the corrupt religiosity that was happening in the leaders, that whole system would be judged and the temple itself would be torn down. So you have conflict, judgment, conflict, judgment, conflict, judgment, widow's might, conflict, judgment. And then there's there's this little story. A four-verse scene in between these judgment narratives. Let's listen to this famous story again in context. He sat down opposite the treasury, began observing people who were putting money into the treasury, and many rich people were putting in large sums. As Tuesday is winding down, Jesus sits down with an eye shot of the treasury. This was a line of 13 receptacles for the people to walk by, drop their offerings in. They would go right into a receiver and then right into the pockets of the the leaders, by the way. And he must have been sick watching this happen. He knew the sacrifice of the people. He knew where this money was going into the corrupt racket of false religion, into the wicked leaders who were actually at that moment plotting murder. He has to be exhausted. It makes perfect sense he would sit down. But he's not finished teaching. After all this transpired that day between himself and the leaders, he still teaches the disciples. He makes an observation, and we see that observation in verse 42. 
A poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to about a cent. The Greek word here indicates it's the smallest coin in Jewish currency. It was one sixty-fourth of a denarius, and a denarius was a day's wages. Not very much money at all, just a few cents. A couple of pennies. Calling his disciples to him, he said to them, he's just watched a poor widow put two small copper coins into the coffer. And he says to his disciples in verse 43, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. Why? For they put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all she owned All she had to live on. This story of the widow's gift, the widow's might, the widow's copper coins, is almost universally interpreted as teaching a lesson on sacrificial giving. I mean, this widow gave sacrificially, she gave her last cent literally. Her poverty was increased. Even more fold because she gave her last two cents. And her poverty did not prevent her from giving. I grew up hearing how how much this teaches, how much we should give, and how sacrificial we should be. But let's think about this from Mark's perspective, okay? You're overlooking Mark's shoulder. He's writing out on the scroll, the the book of Mark, and, and, and he's going... Conflict, conflict, judgment, condemnation, Jesus wins, they lose, interaction. Then chapter 13, condemnation and judgment on the temple. Let me think. Right in the middle of that, I want to give a lesson on giving. Would that make sense? Many argue this story is about how much the widow gave relative to what she had. She gave everything. But does it make sense that Mark would climax the end of a chapter and a half describing the collision between the Jewish leadership and Jesus with a short vignette on giving and offerings only to return in three verses back to judgment? If you look again at the next discussion in chapter 13, Mark will continue that theme of judgment, judgment on Israel describing the coming destruction of the temple, So, a sweet, simple example and lesson on sacrificial giving and offerings is not in the context. Even more, if we were to grant that this passage is about giving, then what is the lesson? I've heard it taught that this woman is a moving model of faith for giving in contrast to the corrupt rich people. But nothing in this passage says that those rich people are corrupt. Nothing. nothing, There's nothing negative said about the rich who are giving out of their surplus. In fact, they're giving large amounts. Wouldn't that be a good lesson on giving? Please notice nothing also is said about their attitude of the rich who are giving, giving a lot and a lot more. 
Nothing is said about the attitude either of the poor widow and why she was motivated to do this. Who gave her last two cents? Nothing is said about the motivations of the rich or the motivations of this widow. So let's ask a few questions. Does God say anywhere in the Old or New Testament that he expects us to give all we have as an offering? The answer is no. Nowhere does it say that. Just the opposite, 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, if a man does not work, then he is not to eat. Meaning, if you work, you have money to buy groceries and eat. He doesn't say work so you can give all to the offering. Does this text say anything about the rich giving too little? Not at all. Does it say the widow gave the right amount? It doesn't. It just says what happens. Does Jesus say that the rich had too much left after the gift and the widow had the right amount after she gave hers? No, she had nothing after she gave. We're not told these things. And what do we know about the amount of the widow's offering? Oh, we know it was less than a cent, a couple of cents. But we know more than this. Look back at the text. It was all she had to live on. Here's the question raised by this account of the widow's might. What kind of corrupt religious system would receive or demand a widow's last two cents, all she had to live on? Verse 40 tells us, the exact kind of system that would do that, the kind of system, look at the context, that devours widows' houses. This is an illustration then of the wickedness of the scribes devouring the widows' houses. Jesus teaches no principle here regarding giving from this woman's gift. And please notice that the story does not say that he denounced the rich for their giving or applauded the widow for hers. There's no commentary on the true nature of her offering, her heart, the motivation for her gift. And notice this, Jesus does not instruct the disciples to imitate her example. He just says this is what happens. This poor woman is not an aside in Mark's pen or in Jesus' ministry to teach giving right before he goes to the cross. I don't think this is a lesson on giving at all. I think it's a lesson on how corrupt false teachers are at taking advantage of devouring widows' houses and taking advantage of the vulnerable. Is this really an example of how we're supposed to give? Would God really say, give all you have, literally your last penny, drain your bank account, drain your future, drain your retirement, take a call and a vow of poverty, give everything you have to live on and be poor? It doesn't make sense. If a man will not work, need let him eat. Inherent in the biblical mandate is you work in order to sustain life. Yes, we give, 
But that's 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. We give out of, out of joyful hearts. We don't give out of coercion. We don't give out of extortion. And we don't have, give everything we have to live on. If I were to do that as a father and give every penny I had to the offering at Mission Road Bible Church today, and then my family would struggle on where to live and what to eat, how to move around the city, I would fail them as a father. If I followed the example of the widow, it would have spiritually and physically catastrophic consequences. We don't know anything about this widow, by the way. We don't even know if she was a follower of Jesus or faithful in her Judaism. We just know what happened. So when you look closely at this poor widow's gift in the context, she is not the hero or the heroine of the story. Listen, she's the victim of the story. Jesus is merely pointing out a living illustration of leaders and scribes who would devour widows' houses from verse 40. The here is a widow whose house is demonstrably devoured by the system. There's no reason to interpret and apply this text as a lesson on Christian giving, unless the lesson is this, by the way. Give everything you own, become destitute, take a vow of poverty, go home to nothing, with nothing to to sustain yourself, and then die of starvation. That doesn't preach very well. The woman is not commended for what she gave, nor are the rich judged for what they gave. She gave, Jesus noticed, proportionally more than all of them, but that's an observation. Merely an observation. Jesus has just called this system in chapter 11, verse 17, when he cleansed the temple and he turned over the money tables, a robber's den. They were robbing this poor woman into destitution. The lesson here is not about how to give The lesson is to recognize and beware of false shepherds and teachers who are more concerned with the amount you give them than they are the health of your soul. That's the lesson. Wow, can you hear the condemnation of the prosperity gospel in this? John MacArthur sums up this story in one sentence. This isn't about giving It's about taking. These religious leaders were taking. God has always had an eye out for corrupt spiritual leaders. In Ezekiel chapter 34, he says, Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. I just imagine every time I read that, that, Ezekiel is writing this down and over after over, chapter after chapter, paragraph after paragraph, prophesy against, prophesy against, prophesy against. And now he says, prophesy against the leaders, prophesy against the shepherds. Why? Why would God come against the shepherds? Prophesy and say to the shepherds, thus says the Lord, woe shepherds of Israel who have been feeding themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flock? 
this is an illustration of these wicked, overlording shepherds being more concerned about their own spiritual accolades, their own pride, being appreciated, and loving money and getting rich off of the most vulnerable and the poorest. It is very difficult for our minds not to shift to televangelist who discourage giving to your local church so that you can give them your money and be blessed by it and they are literally making widows and the poor poorer while they are getting richer. May God protect our church from corrupt shepherds and corrupt hearts at every level. You know, you think about this, how, how do we walk away from a passage like this? Well, I think it gives us a grid, a grid for discerning spiritual leadership, but it also gives us a grid for our own hearts. Let's not be so quick to throw rocks at these false shepherds before we look to our own hearts, our own leadership, whether a parent, discipler, character leader, a Sunday school teacher, any kind of spiritual influence that you may have. Let's reverse engineer this passage for a moment, can we? True spiritual leadership is characterized by the opposite virtues that we just looked at in these Jewish leaders. Let's look at them all four very quickly. Instead of religious parading, true spiritual leadership exercises humility, just like Jesus. It serves others. The Son of God did not come to be served, but to serve, Mark 10, 45 says, and offer his life as a ransom for many. Instead of parading our religiosity, we ought to be pursuing at the deepest and most expansive level humility, which means to put others' interests ahead of our own. That's Philippians 2. So instead of religious parading, we should be pursuing humility. Secondly, instead of religious extortion, sympathy. Sympathy. Instead of looking to devour widows' houses, We should be looking for who we can serve and how we can sacrifice to make the lives and the ease of others burden-free because of the relationship with us. We're sympathetic. Thirdly, instead of religious pride, we should have authenticity. They stood up and prayed so that people would hear them. We should stand up and pray because we have access to the true and living God who hears our prayers. And then instead of religious exploitation, We should demonstrate self, excuse me, service and care. To extend pastoral care. To look out for the vulnerable. To look out for the widows. To look out for the orphans. To look out for the shut-ins. To look out for anyone who is vulnerable underneath our observation and give them the care that would honor Christ. See how this all stitches together? I hope this woman was truly converted. I hope someone cared for her after she gave everything she had to live on and went back home to nothing. But the lesson that we should take away from this is not to be like the corrupt leaders who promoted and propagated a system that would do something like this to a poor widow. May our faith in the good news of the gospel 
our love for Jesus Christ. Make us like him who saw this for what it was and denounced it.